0: Thank you for the rain, Father. You say in your word, Father, that you are the one who brings all things. You bring both blessing and calamity. You are the one, Father, who brings rain both on the righteous and the unrighteous. You, you know the reasons for doing what you do, Father, and we are just thankful that for your own reasons you brought rain today. And may it continue, Father, for we need it. May we bless your name, Father, in periods of rain and in periods of dryness. For you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we praise your holy name here as we do each week, not for what you did today or what you may do tomorrow, but for who you are and who we may become by grace. Thank you, Father, for the word this morning, for the stories that you've been teaching us through the life of the man Abram and his wife, Sarai. We hope to know better who they were as they sought to follow you in faith, but we also hope, Father, that by their Examples, you would teach us something concerning who we are and can be by grace as well in following you in faith. I pray, Father, you would teach to our hearts individually by your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, I think it's been a little while since I've shared one of my stories with you, so I thought I'd begin this lesson with another. There was a story I heard of a pastor doing outreach in ministry to the indigent to the down and out in the inner city. And on this particular day, he chose to walk into one of the local drinking establishments in the inner city. He figured that would be a good time to find people who needed to know the Lord. This is in the middle of the the afternoon. So likely the people he'd find there would be the, the kind that needed the message. And as he walks in, he does what he always did. He just boldly stepped up to the first man he saw and he tells the man, I'm a pastor and I want to know if you want to go to heaven. And the man replied, Well, certainly, pastor. And to that, the pastor said, well, then I want you to wait over there by that door because I have a message for you. Then the pastor turned to the next man down the row and he said, do you, son, want to go to heaven? And this man said, well, I suppose so. That was good enough for this pastor. And he said, well, then you need to get up and go join that man waiting by the door over there. Down toward the end of the bar, there was a really haggard, weary looking fellow. And he walks his way down. The pastor walks his way down to that end of the bar because He knew this man hadn't heard any of the earlier conversation, and he didn't want him left out. So he walks up to this man, and he says, you look like someone who needs hope. Would you like to go to heaven? And the man's eyes open wide, and he sits back in his stool, and he says, no, not me. And the pastor looks at him and says, really? I don't believe this. He said, are you meaning to tell me that when you die, you don't want to be in heaven? And the man at that point sort of sighs a sigh of relief and he says oh when I die yeah but I thought you were trying to get a grip to go right now <laughs> you know timing is everything and especially in trying to understand God's will timing is everything God operates on a timeline that is often completely different than our own many of you can testify to that I'm sure in your own experience and when he gives us a call he puts some direction in our life Many times, from our perspective, that call or that direction comes either too soon or too late, at least according to our desires, to our thoughts. And when we feel his timing is not to our liking, that's usually a sign, at least in my experience, that we're not walking closely enough at his side. And when we're out of step with where he's going and with what he's doing and with the work that he's accomplishing, then it's going to feel as though his timing is off for our purposes. And there are going to be times when he asks us to go faster than we want or wait longer than we want. But that's in the way we grow to know him better. And our willingness to either go faster or to wait is a test of obedience in itself. It's not a matter of just where we go with him. It's also a matter of whether we do it in his timing or not, for whether or not we are working in his will. And in the story of Abram, which we've been watching now through several chapters into chapter 16 this morning, we've watched him demonstrate faith and obedience in ways that he's responded to God at different points in his path. And he's done it on both ends of the scale. He has so far shown us obedience both through his actions at times, but also through his waiting. Abram's a good example of both. For example, he acted in faith when he left Ur, did he not? But he also showed obedience in his willingness to wait. God gave him direction that he would have a land, an inheritance in Canaan. But as we've learned already, God made it clear to Abram right from the start, this inheritance is not going to happen while you're physically alive on this earth. You won't receive this land that I promised you until a later day, a day in which you are resurrected in a new body, living in a new kingdom, and then in that day you will see the full measure of this inheritance that I promised you. And Abram was willing to forego any claim to the land that he had in the day that we're studying because he knew he would get it in a future day. That's a willingness to wait. That's obedience through waiting. So we've seen him do obedience through both action and waiting. But now let's turn the coin and remember that Abram's not perfect. And he makes mistakes like we all do. And sometimes his mistakes are sins of action and sometimes they're sins of waiting. For example, we saw him act in disobedience when he went to Egypt, choosing to go down there when he should have waited on God in the land and let God provide despite the famine. And then he goes into Egypt and he lies about who his wife is rather than trusting in God to protect her and protect him when they're in Egypt. Often the greatest test of our obedience is not in our willingness to act. It's often in our willingness to wait on the Lord. That is often where the greatest test lies. So he acted when he should have been waiting. And today in chapter 16, we're going to see Abram sinning again, but now through his waiting rather than through his acting. He's going to sin here by waiting when he should have taken action to counsel and guide his wife. Look in verse 1 of chapter 16. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now, behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. Wow. Well, when they left Ur, Abram was 75. Sarai was 65. And they were childless. And they were already past childbearing years. Even back then, even in a day when people were living into their mid-100s, nevertheless, 75, 65, those are past the point when most people in that time would have expected children. And now we're 10 years further on. Abram's 85, Sarah's 75. And at this point, they're still childless. Things look pretty bleak under these circumstances. And after 10 years of this waiting for an heir, Sarah makes a decision. According to the text, Sarah says to herself that there has to be something done to correct this problem. And in verse 2, she tells Abram that God is preventing her, very purposeful use of the words, she says preventing her from having children. In Hebrew, the literal word for preventing there is God is restraining her bearing. The image is so clear. God's got his hands around her womb, so to speak, and he's not letting anything come out of it right now. That's her perception. Now, what she says is actually true. Literally, God has made Sarai barren for a time. That is the truth. We'll see later in the scripture, as we study the story of Abram further on, where we hear the scripture itself actually stating clearly Sarai's womb was opened at the appointed time. But for now, God's blocking childbearing from Sarai. He's not letting it happen. We'll understand why he does what he does with Sarai in a future chapter. But for now, it's simply enough to acknowledge this is, in fact, God in control of of the situation. But what Sarai failed to do at this point was to ask God why she was being kept from having children and then wait for God to bring her the answer. It's interesting to me that she knew enough to credit him with the cause, but she didn't have enough faith to go back to him for the answer of why, much less to ask, what do I do about it? If anything, instead she decides to take matters into her own hands. Now, I want you to think about what Sarai has working for her at this point. There's reason for us to assume that Sarai has been privy to all of the same revelation that Abram had from God. Whether she was present in every moment when God appeared or not is, is not even that important. We can assume that he would have shared things with her. You don't come home and say, honey, guess what? We're leaving her. We're going to Canaan. Why? Mm, can't tell you. Well, some of you might try that, but you only get away with it once. From experience, let me tell you. It doesn't work well. No, I mean, he would have said, this is what I've heard. Where would you hear it? From God. Who? You know, there would have been a conversation. And similarly, when he heard other things from God in those later moments, when he comes home all bloodied from killing all the animals before the covenant, you know, she might have said, what have you been up to? Right. There has been conversation. She's privy to all of the things God has told Abram, I would assume, including the promise that he would have an heir. And in chapter 15, God was abundantly clear with Abram. He said, this would be an heir from your own body, Abram. Not somebody else. Not Eleazar, your servant. So she knows that God has said Abram will be the father. But to give her some credit, she has not heard anything with respect to who the mother will be. No one has. God has never revealed that yet. So, after 10 years, she's starting to wonder whether it's her. Now, the natural assumption for her to have made was that she would have been the mother. I mean, after all, they're married. They've been married all these years. It would only make sense to think God's going to bring the woman that is with Abram to be the mother of the child. But but she's starting to question that. And so she's now decided that perhaps the answer isn't going to be found in her body. It's going to be found in the body of some other woman. Now, here again, she could have gone to the Lord for an answer on this, couldn't she? Do you notice that's not in the text? And it's not just missing because Moses didn't choose to write it. It's missing because it didn't happen. There isn't that moment when you would have expected on such an important question as, where's my baby going to come from? That you wouldn't have seen her stop and say to the Lord in prayer, give me some help here. Am I supposed to take this on or am I supposed to wait? Am I supposed to do this or am I supposed to do that? Where's where's that in here? It's not here. And that explains a lot for what happens next. You know, when we make decisions without counsel from the Lord, we should not expect that our natural fleshly instincts are going to produce the same kinds of answers that a spirit-led response would. In fact, Scripture would tell us that they'll always be different. Our ways are not His ways. So if we want his way, we have to ask him. She doesn't do it. Now, at this point, it probably is worth a few minutes of background on why she's so interested in going outside herself to find a mother. Why she's even contemplating, for example, pulling another woman into the conversation and making her share her husband with another woman. And the answer is to do with the seriousness of childlessness in this time, in this age childlessness having no children was considered the worst possible fate in the ancient world there was nothing more condemning for a couple than to leave this earth without children in ancient culture it was understood to be a curse from god in fact and a judgment against the marriage and usually the woman bore the brunt of the blame for there being no children in the marriage so this was a particularly damning condemnation of the woman in any marriage in many cases today, I meet couples who are without children or wishing they could and can't have children. And you feel even now that burden on the woman more than the man to figure out a way to solve this problem. Men want children, but they're often less concerned by the lack of a child. In Abram's day, the laws of the culture permitted men to obtain additional wives when the couple was childless. If the first wife didn't produce a child for some period of time, And it was decided they had to do it some other way. The man could elect to take another free woman as a second wife. Literally, he could just go out and choose another woman and marry her as he did with the first woman. In fact, in some places in the ancient culture, the wife, the first wife, the barren wife, was obligated to make available a second woman for her husband to get children. It was her obligation, if she couldn't produce a child, to find someone who could. Now, in that case, in the example I just gave, where the husband gets a second wife who is a free woman, when that occurred, both women had equal standing. They were both considered full wives. They both had a share in the inheritance. They both obviously had the uh, opportunity to have the husband's affections. It was a completely equal relationship, and that obviously would bring a bit of a new dynamic into the marriage, right? Now, if you're the barren woman under such a circumstance and you are trying to figure out how to help your husband get an heir, you obviously don't prefer bringing a second woman into the relationship on an equal standing with yourself, because think about what that's going to mean long term. Long term, that woman starts having children and you still don't. Who's going to become the more important wife to the husband? It sets you up. If you're the barren woman, it sets you up for a life of second class citizenship in the marriage and for misery even though you should be considered equal with that other wife. So in light of that, there was a second option that most women would prefer over the first one. And the second option was that the woman who was barren could choose a wife for her husband from among her own slaves. In this day and age, people had slaves. Abram has slaves. He has male servants or slaves, and he has female servants or slaves. The female slaves answer to the woman. She is their mistress or master over them. And so she has ownership over what the women slaves do. The husband ran the field workers and the laborers, the men slaves. So she has her own women that she can do with what she wants. If she took one of those female slaves and gave her to the husband, this woman, because she's a slave, would be considered a concubine. If the husband agreed to the union, they consummated the union, Then that concubine, that slave, became a legal wife. She still had the title wife. But because she was also a slave owned by the first wife, she did not have the same status in the household. She could not inherit any property. And any children she produced would legally belong to the first wife. So it would be as if the first wife had the children, not the second wife. And she would forever be a slave still under the control of the wife, the first wife. You can see that's a totally different dynamic, isn't it? For the first wife, she now continues in that prominent status, yet still has an heir now coming out of that second relationship. So concubines in Scripture, when you see that term, it's a reference to a slave made a wife, but maintaining slave status. According to the law, this was something that could be done. By the way, the law also said that if a female slave ever became a wife, a concubine, at that point she could never be sold. So the one thing you could not do with a concubine was to sell her away from the household. She now belonged to the husband as a wife. She can't be sold and put outside the house. Now that's the solution Sarai chose here. Hagar is her slave, her handmaiden. And she gives her, gives Hagar to Abram rather than sharing a full second wife. Hagar, we remember, came from Egypt. That's what it says here when it says Hagar is the Egyptian. She is somebody that came out of Egypt when Abram and Sarai left that land back when he previously visited there. And you remember what Egypt is a picture of in Scripture, right? Generally speaking. Sin, worldliness, the world of flesh, in other words. And here you have a woman who is a picture of that. Her very origin is that. And she comes now to be a wife, a concubine of Abram. By the way, her name, it means to flee, as in a fugitive, fleeing, which I think was a reflection of how they left Egypt. It also carries prophetic meaning, which we'll study here later, next week. Now, as we said, Sarai and Abram were following the customs of the day. Let's talk about what they're planning here to do, just for a moment. Because I know for all of us today, this seems very much outside and not keeping with what we would expect to see done in our culture. In fact, I hope that's the case. hope nobody in here has suddenly got the wild idea that, you know, this is something I ought to go try myself. Let me just tell you right now, this would be a bad idea. Let's be clear, though, from what they saw in their day. From Abram's perspective, from Sarai's perspective, there was nothing immoral about this plan. Speaking from the world's point of view, from the customs, from what the world itself would have said about what they were doing, the world would have seen it as normal. But just because it's not immoral in keeping with human law, that doesn't mean it's in keeping with God's expectations or God's law. We're just speaking here about what the world would have said. Today, the world would say it's wrong as well. But in that day, it wasn't. The question, though, of God's view of bigamy or polygamy, of having more than one wife, that view has been debated in the church and outside the church. Throughout the ages, you still see it coming up today from time to time. There are still people who call themselves Christian, maybe some of them are, who are practicing this practice still. And the practice of it, where it does exist, usually centers on These examples in scripture, major biblical characters who are seen to have concubines or or second wives, and then people turn to those examples and they point to them in the scripture and they say, you see, it was done back then, we should be able to do it now. And by the way, if you wanted to do a little cursory examination of scripture on this point, some of the names that will pop up may surprise you. Besides Abram, we have Jacob, he has four wives, two full wives, two concubines. We have Caleb. Goes into the land as part of the spies of Israel. Gideon had multiple wives. Saul, David, Solomon, Solomon raised it to an art form. That's what we have in scripture. So it's not as though these are minor characters. There are some fairly substantial, major characters. Men like David, who are called a man after God's own heart. Major, you know, Abram, the friend of God. These are people who sh- who matter to us in scripture, and yet they practice this. So some have concluded based on these examples that multiple wives is something God permits. But that conclusion is wrong, and I'll give you four reasons briefly for why that's wrong. First, Scripture records numerous men having multiple wives, but the fact that Scripture records an event is not equal to Scripture endorsing the event. That should be simple and easy to understand, but it's surprising to me how often that's overlooked. For example, the Scripture also records Jacob lying to his father. Should we do that too? Or David committing adultery. We all know that story. Should we repeat that one? Saul practicing divination. Solomon permitting idolatry in the nation of Israel. We would not draw a conclusion that because those men did those things, we should go out after them and repeat those same things, would we? So, why do we prefer that they should be used as examples when it comes to multiple wives? The only reason I can come up with this is because there's some men who want to justify their sin. And For the record, it beside me why anybody would want multiple wives, personally. I I love my wife. I would never want to be without her. But I can't imagine having two to serve and and support. It's it's a tough thing to be a good husband to one. To be able to meet the high test of of a good, godly husband. That's not easy. Try doubling that process. I don't understand why people want to do that. Two poodles. Oh, my gosh. Two poodles. Well, whatever last bit of interest I had in, in more than one wife just went out the door when you said two poodles. So likewise, we cannot draw the conclusion that multiple wives was in God's plan simply because some men made the mistake of pursuing multiple wives. The second reason is that in each case where Scripture does record multiple wives, like the one we're studying here this morning, wherever you see that, and this is something I'd encourage you to do as you study Scripture and you come across these men who are having multiple wives, look at the context in which the discussion of their multiple wives takes place. If you do that, you will notice that in every case, Scripture portrays the experience in a negative light. In every case. This chapter, for example, will show us the consequences of Abram's sin as he takes a second wife. Later, Scripture tells us repeatedly about the sin of Jacob's multiple marriages and how that affected him. We'll study that when we get there. Likewise, when you look at Saul, when you look at David, when you look at Solomon, every time they go after multiple wives, there is obvious negative consequential Effects And it's clearly laid out in scripture. If you just read it plainly, you come away saying, I don't want to do that. One commentator said this, a thousand volumes written against polygamy would not lead to a clearer, fuller conviction of its evils than the story under view. That is the story of Abram right now. So the only conclusion we can draw from the examples we do have is that it's a bad example. Third, the practice of multiple wives here did not begin with an instruction from God. Who was the first man to practice multiple wives? We studied this. Lamech, the seventh man from Cain. Remember, Cain's line in Scripture becomes the poster child for evil, in contrast to Seth's line, who is the line of the seed, of a promised seed. And when you look at the seventh in their lines, the completed version of each line, seven being a a number that means completedness, perfection, The seventh in Cain's line is this man, Lamech, who is the worst sort you can imagine, who invents multiple wives. The seventh, on the other hand, coming out of Seth's line is Enoch, the man who was taken off this earth and translated because he walked with God. Polar opposites. Well, let me tell you, if Lamech invented it, you don't want to do it. Look at its source, in other words. Finally, Scripture's teaching concerning marriage is so abundantly clear on this point. A man shall leave his mother and his father and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's no room for three in that equation. There's simply no room in the theology of the Bible for a husband to share himself with multiple wives to do so is sin. So Sarai and Abram, by extension, are making a mistake here. One that's permitted by the culture, but not in keeping with God's direction. So how, we might ask then, did they rationalize this decision? What was going on in her head and in his head to say, yeah, this is a good idea? Well, it was probably quite easy, actually. They have been childless their entire marriage, and now they've been promised a child by God, and it's been 10 years since they heard that promise. 10 years, folks, is a long time. Think back 10 years ago to your life, whatever was going on 10 years ago. must seem like a long time, doesn't it? For some of us, we've had such major events in our life transpire in those last 10 years. We have to think, gosh, 10 years feels like a lifetime ago. Imagine waiting 10 years for something you've already waited till you've been 65 or 75, and then you wait 10 more years. So as they sit here with this promise, unfulfilled, wondering, what's up? Where is it? The only conclusion Sarai draws, apparently, is, God is preventing me from having children. So she says, Maybe we need to do it some other way. And you can imagine what she might unfold herself. I can hear the narrative because I've said it to myself, unfortunately, in other cases and in other circumstances. She says something like this. God provided us with Hagar when he blessed us leaving Egypt, so Hagar must be his provision to us so that we would have children. You see how we explain our circumstance as being an excuse for our preferences and our desires, even if those don't line up with God? I have to believe we've all done this somewhere along the way. I know I have. You know, we've had that conversation where we say, surely God wants me to have blank. Just fill it in. A person, a thing, a job, a house, uh, whatever. Fill it in. And the fact that he hasn't given it to me this far is just proof that he wants me to get it some other way. The fact that I don't have something from God now Isn't proof that God doesn't want me to have it. No, 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 no. It's just proof that I have to work harder to get it. I have to find some other way to get it. Trying to obtain it some other way when it's not God's will that we would have it now or at all is sin. It's working outside His will. It's sin. So Abram and Sarah here are acting out of impatience, I would think, and then secondly out of their failure to trust God to do what He said He's going to do in His own timing. And so they have to make their own effort to seek This in some other way. And I think more than anything else, it's a reflection on Abram and Sarai's unwillingness to seek out for God. Do you notice they never even ask, as I mentioned earlier? They never even ask. Here's a good test, folks, for whether you're working outside his will or not. If, as you think to get what you want, the thought of stopping and praying first makes you feel like, I won't get it. I don't want to stop and ask, you know. Why? Well, because it might be no. No. Well, then you, got, you, you just got all you needed to know right then and there. You're on the wrong track. You need to stop. Does that feel familiar at all? Am I really the only one up here? <laughs> I wasn't speaking to you, Nancy. So, and, and I want to remember, Abram's such an interesting fellow for all that he goes through. His circumstances make this all the more pronounced, this sin all the more pronounced. Here's a guy who's heard from God personally on at least three occasions. I mean, in ways that none of us normally get to hear from God on. He knows what it's like to hear from God and receive instruction from God. And on a question this important, he simply, look at the text, he simply listens to the voice of his wife. Why not lift it up in prayer? Now there are are many ways in which our faith is supposed to drive us to live differently in this world. But none are more important than in the way we make decisions. There is no place in our walk more important than in our decision-making processes. And if our decision-making processes look just like the world, then how is the world to see any difference in our life? This is where really the rubber meets the road. When the world makes decisions, how does it do it? How did we all do this, in fact, before we knew the Lord, Uh, if you can think back to that time? We traditionally, typically, we weigh options. We evaluate outcomes. We rely on on human wisdom, and, and we arrive at some weighted evaluated outcome. Makes sense, right? Certainly the world thinks that. We can make those kinds of assessments. We're not to just do this with no thought. I understand that we have intellect. Let's use it. But at the end of the day, if that's all we do, we just mimic the world. We haven't used our faith whatsoever. The expectation on Christians, on anyone who follows the Lord in faith, is that at the end of the day, we are spirit-led, not flesh-driven. We are God-fearing, not self-satisfied. So at the end of the day, it's about what God wants, not what we want. They don't appear here to take any time to seek God's will on this matter. And so Abram, we're told, listened to the voice of his wife and took Hagar as his second wife. Now, often God will frustrate us when we try to go around him and obtain something outside his will. I'm working to get something I want without seeking God's will, but it seems every time I try, it gets stymied, something blocks my way, and eventually I get the point. Hopefully. But the truly frightening examples are when he lets us have what we want, even though it's not his desire that we get it, because he wants to teach us a lesson. Those are the worst outcomes in my experience. And in this case, with Abram and Sarai, that's how God approaches it. They want to have an heir. They want to do it in their own power. They don't want to wait on him. Fine. Let's see how this works out. Hopefully you can see some parallels here to Genesis 3. Remember in that chapter, there's a similar statement by God to Adam when he disciplined Adam in chapter 3. God said this, because you listen to the voice of your wife, and then he gives him the discipline for his sin. It's the same problem here. Like Adam and woman in the garden, Abram and Sarai have a promise from God, but they don't listen to God. They take their own counsel. And in this case specifically, the husband takes his wife's instructions over the Lord's instructions, and the result is a great sin. Now, let me be very clear about what I'm saying and what I think Scripture is saying, because I don't want to leave you with the wrong impression. The lesson is not that the husband should never take his wife's counsel. No, there is an intent here that husbands would hear their wives and wives would hear their husbands. The lesson, though, is that both husband and wife should heed the Lord's instructions. And that because neither did, one influenced the other into sin. But there is, I think, an appropriate lesson concerning headship as well. And the lesson for headship is, ultimately, the responsibility in a case of a couple lies with the husband to ensure the family is walking in the will of the Lord. And here's where Abram should have acted. Rather, then remained passive. Here's where we see him sinning through waiting or sinning through passivity rather than acting in obedience and counseling his wife to do something different than she's considering. And he fails that test. Each time Abram makes a sinful choice throughout this story of Abram, his action is going to bring some kind of consequence. That's the natural result of sin. But because Abram is so central to God's plan, because he's Abram and not just Steve, the consequences for Abram's sin are history-changing. His life is history-changing. The promise God gave to him is history-changing. It's the opening of the door of the gospel to the nations, ultimately. Well, by that same measure, when this man steps off the straight and narrow and does something wrong, there are history-changing consequences for this man. For example... When he went to Egypt, he came back with Hagar. And now that he will take Hagar as a wife and marry her, this Egyptian, this woman who is not of God's choosing, he will produce an heir that will have long-lasting consequences that continue into this day now. And you're going to see one of those consequences right now. In just the last section for this morning, look at verses 4 through 6, and let's just see the consequence. Verse 4, he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived... And I'll put some names here because I want to make sure you're clear on what the text is saying. And Hagar conceived. And when Hagar saw that Hagar had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. Or Sarai was despised in Hagar's sight. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now we don't have time this morning to really pour over what this says, and and I'm going to save some of it for next week because it gives us a chance to transition to the second half of this chapter. But we can look at just the beginning here and learn something important from the lesson today. Hagar here finds herself with a child, as we expect, And immediately the problems begin. Here are your consequences. Now, it's not hard to imagine Sarai's attitude here, is it? In a way, we can sympathize with her, I guess, a little bit. She must have contemplated, her maidservant here, pregnant with her husband's child. And that must have led to a flood of emotion and a flood of thought. We know for decades, Sarah had wanted nothing more than just to have a child. That's been her hope for a long time. The society would have put that hope on her. And conversely, it would have scorned her in the meantime while she didn't have a child. So this is her, this is her reason for living at this point, is to have an heir, to have a child. And all the while, as she was experiencing childlessness, the world, the culture was telling her, it's her fault. But in the back of her mind, even if just privately, you know she's wondering is it me? Maybe it's Abram. Maybe it's not my fault. Maybe God's not doing this to me. Maybe it's my husband. And now the answer is obvious. It's not Abram. It's her. For whatever reason, for whatever reason God has in keeping her barren, it's obvious that Abram can have children, and he does. And now you couple that disappointment with the joy that she sees in Hagar's face. And then Her jealousy is just ripe to grow under those circumstances, right? And then one day, Hagar does the things she shouldn't have done. She gives Sarai the look. I don't even know how to make it, but I certainly know how to recognize it when I see it. She gave her the look, right? There's maybe a little bit of pity in Hagar's eyes, looking down at Sarai just just in that subtle way, or maybe it was a wry, knowing smile, you know, that look like, don't you wish you had what I had? It communicated more than words could, And so I realized at that moment that Hagar, her slave, was now treating her with contempt. And that was more than she could take. So she goes to Abram and she protests. Now at first, you know, I chuckle, you would chuckle, we'd all chuckle at the thought of this woman who made this choice, running to her husband and saying, it's your fault. And we want to look at her and we want to say, yeah, you know, you did it to yourself. Does Abram bear the blame then? Is she wrong to take this and throw it at Abram's feet? Well, in a sense, no. I mean, Abram didn't originate the idea. It wasn't his proposal. It was Sarai's proposal. But I would argue, on the other hand, that mostly she's right. This is Abram's fault. And not for the obvious reason that he had to participate with Hagar in in making a child. I'm talking now about the leadership role here in the family. He should have anticipated this outcome. There's nothing hard about seeing this coming from the start. You're going to have a child with a woman who is a slave to your wife. It's not in keeping with God's will. Where do you think this is headed, Abram? Hagar now understood she had special status in this family, not in keeping with her slave role, and she was taking full advantage of it and making Abram's full wife, Sarai, feel contemptible. And she feels hurt, and she feels powerless. And so she goes to her husband, who's supposed to protect her from these kinds of things, and says, God will judge between you and I. That's not some idle phrase, by the way. That's not just something you throw out when you're mad at somebody. That means a lot. God, she says, will determine which of us made the bigger mistake. And I suspect God will blame Abram. Not Sarai. Not as much, maybe. And that's the full meaning of headship, Gentlemen, if you and I have heard the teachings of Scripture concerning the role of men in leading families and in the leadership role within the marriage, the idea of headship, and we've embraced that, we understand that, and if we're not careful, we take that and we we sort of beat our wives over the head with it sometimes. Let me give you the biblical view of headship. Here's the biblical view of headship. The point of headship is not who has the earthly power in a marriage. It is who will endure the heavenly accounting for the family's sin. So while we go home, rest in our power as the leader in the family, I want you to remember it's this moment, this judgment moment that she's alluding to, that really is where headship comes to bear in our lives. And if you and I are going to stand before our Lord on that day and answer for the sin of our family as heads of the household, we better be prepared for what's coming on that day and take full opportunity to lead in the proper way now. And let's end with this. Abram compounds one sin with another. Look what he does after he is confronted by his wife. He is dismissive, and he reminds his wife, it's your slave, do whatever you want with her. Now, what is he likely to see happen as a result of his words? Exactly what takes place. She treats, it says, the Egyptian... Harshly, and the word harshly in in Hebrew literally means to mistreat her. It's the same word used to describe how the Egyptians treated Israel when they're in slavery. Isn't it ironic how God turns this and brings it back in a future day? This is a cruel and thoughtless response by Abram, and it turns Hagar now into the victim. And that was not a man leading either. We'll save the rest of this for another day. We'll come back next week and look at how these consequences play out, and that will actually continue into some future chapters. But I hope, if nothing else, you've left the study from this morning with some things to think about, not only with concerns of of headship in the family, but more importantly, are we looking to God in direction for our decision-making, or are we leaning on the world's methods? Are we taking opportunity to ask God for counsel as we make decisions, or do we rush past Him? That's something only the Spirit can tell you. I hope you give Him a chance to, to speak to your heart. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You, Lord, for the Scripture. Thank You for the reminders. Father, as you know, when a person comes to speak the word and preach the message that you lay on their heart, they so often preach to themselves first and foremost, and that was the conviction in my heart this morning, Father. Help me to be a man who learns your will before he chooses his own steps. Help me model leadership in my family in ways that help others see it in theirs. Help us all, Father, to be more Christ-like. As he did your will in all that he did, let us be able to say we did the same. And bring us back next week, Father, as you have faithfully done for so many years. And let us continue in our study. I pray in Jesus' name.